Okay, so if you guys want to turn to the book of Jonah, I thought we would do something a little bit different. Are we going to play games? No, we're going to read the whole entire book of Jonah. That's fine. Which will be interesting. Did you get swallowed by a whale game? You know, it's funny that you say that because we're actually going to talk about that because, you know, um, anytime you ask anyone uh, or you bring up the that Jonah, that's the first thing that they talk about, right? And, you know, Jonah and the whale and things. And uh, most most of it, this, the fact of the matter is, is that most of us get our understanding, more or less, from like Sunday school, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the Old Testament anyway. And, and so a lot of our understanding comes from um, Sunday school or Veggie Tales or, or something like that. And so... Um, but basically what happens is that we have a skewed understanding of, of the Old Testament and, and characters in the Old Testament because they're filtered out through a lens of, of, first of all, you're teaching kids, you know, so you have to kind of water it down a little bit. And, you know, and it just becomes, uh, most of that stuff becomes like little lessons on how to be nice to people or, you know, how to treat people in your class better and things like that. So, which kind of is one of the reasons why I wanted to look at this because... Um, the biblical version of the book of Jonah is completely different. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, um, uh, it's just totally, I mean, shockingly different, actually. I mean, when you actually read the book of Jonah, um, like, like if you've never read it before, the first time you read it, I mean, it just blows your mind, especially after, you know, your, your whole conception of Jonah is what, like Jonah and the whale and, you know, and Jonah, you know, learned to treat people nicer and things like that. Um, when you read the Bible, and the, the cool thing about it is, is when you read the Bible, the Bible's not sanitized. The Bible is not just, you know, cute little stories about David, you know, and the Goliath and, and uh, Jonah and, and the whale and things like that. The Bible, when, especially when we read through the book of Jonah, we're going to see that it's a very real thing. And the book of Jonah, when you read it, it's not, it's not, and again, that's why the Bible is so cool, because it's not something that if you were going to write a story, it's not how you would write it, right? Because there's a lot of darkness in the book of Jonah, and there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. Jonah himself has a lot of flaws. He has a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And, uh, and that's a, again, that's the cool thing about the Bible. The Bible is a book of discovery. It is, it is like... One of the things that I love to do is I like to go different places. I like to go places that I've never been before and, and kind of connect the dots and things. And I remember one time we were in downtown Dallas um, over kind of by the Red Courthouse, if you guys know anything about Dallas. Um, all my life, or not, pretty much most of my life, I've, I've always um, like read books and studied about um, JFK, right? Mm -hmm. And the assassination of JFK. It's always fascinated me. And I've gone to both extremes on what I believe about that. But anyway, I've, I've seen all the films, you know, the Zapruder film and all the, all the films of the assassination. I've watched documentaries. I've, I've read books and things like that. And one day we we're in downtown Dallas and I'm looking around and everything looks familiar. Uh, you know, and I look over here and there's like the grassy knoll and I look over here and, and, and there's the triple underpass that you always hear about, you know, and stuff. And then I look up and there's the school book depository and stuff. And so 
because I had read about things like like um, the assassination and I'd seen film clips of it and things like that, all of a sudden being there and being in that situation, it all comes alive, right? And that's kind of the way the Bible is too. Just like even when we read about Balaam, how like if you go to Numbers 22 and you read just Numbers 22 about Balaam, you're going to miss a lot of that story. Because he's like in seven, seven or eight different places in the Bible, all the way to Jude, through Revelation, Second Peter. He's all over the Bible and stuff. And so when you when you start taking these these pieces and matching them together, and you start coming up with a whole, it transports you there, right? And that's the way the Bible is. And for us to understand the Bible, we have to. And, and that's why, again, the more we study the Bible the more it opens up our understanding and the more that God is able to speak to us and the more we're able to put ourselves in that place. Amen? And so, same with the book of Jonah. Um, like, uh, like, you know, if I were to tell you that Jonah is in two other places in the Bible, you would probably guess one of them, right? In, uh, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus is talking about how when he, uh, like... Um, like because the people were searching for signs, he says no sign is going to be given this generation except the sign of Jonah, where Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days. The Son of Man's going to be in the in the earth for three days, and then he's going to rise again. Right. So most of us pretty much know that, but uh, Jonah also is in Second Kings. So if you guys want to hold your place in Jonah, yeah. So turn over to Second Kings. And again, this is the cool thing about the Bible. There is so much about the Bible. And this is, again, how the Bible begins to tie itself together and stuff. And there's all these threads in the Bible. And, and, and when you start studying it and you start reading it, you start remembering, man, you know, I've read about Jonah somewhere else. Where was it at, you know? And, and again, all these things are to give us more insight into it and to give us more understanding. And in 2 Kings... Um, 14 verse 23 um, starting yeah 23 it says in the 15th year of Amaziah Amaziah was one of the kings of Judah the son of Joash king of Judah Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin. And uh, one thing from reading the Bible, if you read like any of the Old Testament, it talks over and over about the different kings that, were, that, that ruled over Israel and over Judah and things like that. And a lot of these were wicked people. And Jeroboam especially was a very wicked king and stuff. And so... Um, Continuing on in verse 25, it says, He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, look at this, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. You see that? So this, again, gives us just a, another picture into the life of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet that God spoke through, and and... And he was living in the times of one of the most wicked kings in all of Judah. So the times that this is the time that Jonah was living through. And, and when we read this, we see that Jonah was a true prophet of the Lord and that the Lord spoke through him. Verse 26, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. 
The Lord did not say that he would blot out from the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Okay, back over to Jonah. So again, these are, whenever you read things like this, you, I mean, the, that's what's awesome about God in the Bible is because these aren't just stories. This is history, right? And these are corrobor corroborations that, that, again, tie the story in together. Again, just like with the story of Balaam, I mean, if you just read Numbers, you're only going to get part of the story. But if you keep reading all the other places where it's at, you see, like, the, you know, what God did with him and, and what, how he ended his life and all that kind of stuff. And so basically, I just wanted to read through the book of Jonah, starting from the very beginning. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the wicked city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, and again, if, if you've read the Bible, that phrase that he uses there where he says their wickedness has come up before me, if you think about it, God has used that phrase in another place. Does anyone know? Exactly. It's the same phrase. And so when, when you look at that, you, you see that God's heart is the same for these people as he was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sins had made such a stench in the nostrils of God that his, it has arisen before God, and, and, he, and he, he says that their sins have come up before me. And so God, I mean, I believe that over and over in the Bible, you see that God is very patient, very long-suffering, but there comes a point where God says, you know what, I've had enough of this, and I'm going to deal with it, and I'm going I'm to put an end to it, right? And so, basically, what we're seeing is that Nineveh is in the same position as Sodom and Gomorrah were. God has seen their sins, and he's going to deal with it. Um, it's just like with your kids. You, you know, you let your kids push you and push you and push you, and finally, you come to the point where, okay, I've had enough. I'm not dealing with this anymore. Um, uh, look at this in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, where is he going to go? Right? And again, it's just like we, we are. Sometimes we think we're so wise and we think we're so, so smart, but then we'll do the stupidest things. Like, where are you going to go? And we saw in, in 2 Kings that Jonah's a prophet. God speaks to Jonah and God speaks through Jonah. And so God tells him something and Jonah, his first reaction is, no, I'm going the opposite direction. All right? And uh, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was, which was going to Joppa, and he paid the fare, and he went, down, he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, how are you going to run from the presence of the Lord? So again, Jonah is, is running from God, and he thinks that he can, he can run away from the Lord. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Now, one thing about Jonah that... A lot of people say all the time is that, and they use Jonah to say that, you know, no matter where you go, God's just going to chase you down, right? And no matter what I do, God's going to go there. There's so many Christian songs that's like, I could run away and you'll never leave and God's always going to be there. But you know what? If, and, and sometimes that's true. But if you read the Bible, for the most part, it's not that way. Like even in, um, like, um, in, uh, in Zechariah, the, when the people of God were sinning against, uh, when the people were sinning against God, he says, return to me and I will return to you. 
right? And so the onus is always on us to return to God. The onus is not, you know, is not that God is going to follow you into your sins and he's going to follow you no matter where you go. He's going to be right there with you. He's going to stay right where he's at, right? And again, and, and even in Revelation 3.20 where Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into them. But again, we have to open up the door to him. And so again, all these people that are saying, well, the Lord's just, you know, no matter what I do, if I go back to my sins, if I, no matter what I do, God's going to come back. He's still going to be with me there. No matter how far I go, if I, if I go into my sin, he's still going to be there. Um, hold your place there and look at uh, Luke chapter 15. And again, there are so many Christian songs that say that and stuff. But, you know, when you read the Bible, that's not what it says, right? And a lot of people will even bring up the prodigal and stuff. And they're, and they're like, well, you know, God will, God will be with you no matter where you go. And well, stuff. my father was waiting for him. He right. didn't go chase him into the filth. Exactly. He was waiting for him to return. Right. And he was very happy that he returned. And he was yeah. more than happy to pour his love out on him. Right. So in Luke 15, verse 11... Jesus is telling him a uh, parable and he says a man had two sons the younger one said to his father father give me the share of the estate that falls to me so he divided his wealth between them and not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living now when he had spent everything a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now again, just like Amy was saying, this guy, he gets his inheritance, and he goes and he lives riotously, is what the King James says. He goes and he just, he blows his money, and he's, he winds up, winds up living with the pigs, and he's lost everything. And again, the father did not go to where the son was. The father stayed where he was at. Um... Verse 15 again, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. Look at this in 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hungry. Look at this in verse 18. This is repentance, right? He says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So when he's, he's, he's like, I'm not going to go to the father and say, look, I'm your son. You know, you deserve, I deserve to be treated right by you. Yes, I went and wasted your money and I spent everything that I had, but I'm your son and you need to take me back in. That's not his attitude at all. His attitude is one of humbling himself, one of humility and brokenness. And he's like, he knows he's blown it. And he knows that he has nothing to offer. He knows that he has nothing that he can stand on. He, all, he can, all that he can depend on is the mercy of the Father. So he got up, verse 20, and came to his father. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran him, and embraced him, and kissed him. So just like we're saying, the father did not follow him into his sins, but the father waited for him. And again, when, they, when the father saw, saw him, it says he saw him a long ways off, and he ran to him. 
And that is the heart of God. God wants reconciliation. He wants the unrepentant to come back. He he desires for everyone to repent and come to the excuse me, the knowledge of the truth, right? But he waits for that person to see their need, to come to the end of themselves to see, look, I've got nothing to offer. All I can offer is say, look, I'll be like one of your slaves. Just put me to work, just just whatever you have to do. I don't have to live as a son. I can live as one of the slaves. Uh Let's see, in, in verse 21, it says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, this is a true picture of repentance. He's broken. He's not relying on any of his good deeds. He's not relying on anything in himself to give him favor, favor with the father. Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the breast robe and put it on him and put a, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He is lost and has been found and they begin to celebrate. Turn back to Jonah. Can we read a scripture super quick? Yes. Okay. Um, Isaiah 57, 15... For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Mm. And I think a lot of it comes down to God is holy, and he doesn't dwell with the sin, he doesn't go into the sin, but if we humble ourselves and humility and contriteness, then that's also where he dwells, where when when we truly humble ourselves. Yeah. So he's, but he's holy, and that's part of the reason he doesn't go into our sin with us. But he is waiting, and he is waiting for that contriteness and that brokenness and that humility, and then he's right there. Yeah, just like it says in James, he resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. Mm-hmm. Are you yeah. going to go back to the story? Yes, back to Jonah. Jonah. No, no, no. Sorry. Oh. Are you going to go back to the Bible yes. later? Yes. Okay. You guys are so fast. You guys are so good. Yes. That also goes into, because um, in the New Testament, it, there's a verse that says um, that God will just, uh, he'll let people fall into their sin. And what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, and it's true. I mean, over and over, people if people are willful and they're, they're stubborn and they're determined to go their way, God steps back mm-hmm. and he allows them to do that. You know, and then hopefully when they crash and burn, they, like the prodigal son, they turn back to the father and stuff. Amen. Now, one thing that I missed about Jonah is that the name Jonah means dove. Mm. And again, going back, um, we've talked about it before, but one of the one of the important things in 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 um, um, understanding the Bible is the principle of first usage. And so when I was studying about how his name is called Dove, I'm thinking about where's the first time that doves were used in the Bible? And it goes all the way back to the flood, right? In the flood, you know, we all know the story of the flood, 40 days and 40 nights and it rained and stuff. And, and so they were, they were in the ark for, for several months, for a long time and stuff. And, and then when, when they first started seeing dry land, um, Noah sent out a raven, and it came back, right? And then he sent out a dove. Okay, the first time he sent out the dove, the dove brings back an olive branch. 
and then he sends out a dove again, and the dove doesn't come back because it had found land, right? And so the picture of the dove throughout the Bible is always one of peace with God, okay? So when, when, when Noah sent out the dove, it was, it was showing that now there was peace with God. Man can go back unto the land, and, you know, God's not going to destroy the earth again with a flood, and there's the rainbow and things like that. And so he sends out the dove, and, that's, and so the dove is always symbolic in the Bible of peace with God. And that's not like a hippie kind of peace where it's like, oh, peace, man. It's like peace with God, right? In other words, our warfare with God is over with. And so Jonah, his name means, is, is well, his name is Dove, but he is supposed to be, God has designed him to be someone who brings peace with God, right? And that's why the Bible says, and even in the New Testament, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God, right? And so again, in that, in that kind of scenario, uh, being a peacemaker is not necessarily someone that goes up and breaks up bar fights. Being a peacemaker is someone that brings reconciliation between man and God. Does that make sense? Over and over in the New Testament where he says, peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's not talking about just this sense of happiness and this kind of, you know, singing around the campfire. He's talking about having at one time we were alienated against God. We were at active war with him. And now as we've come through to come to God through Jesus, that war is no longer active. That war is over with and now we have peace with him. And so again, Jonah's call, Jonah's as, as a prophet, his calling is to bring peace between man and God. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so verse 4, the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below in the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen asleep. And again, like... The thing about the book of Jonah is everything is backwards. Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. When you read about this thing that where Jonah went into the hold of the ship and fell asleep, immediately it brings you to the New Testament, doesn't it? Where Jesus went, was in the hold of the ship and the disciples are freaking out and they're like, Lord, this shit, don't you care about us? The ship is about to break up. We're going to die. And he's like, why, why are you so filled with unbelief? And so when we read this, immediately our attention is to be drawn there. And it's to do that to show the contrast in what's going on in the book of Jonah. Everything in the book of Jonah is backwards. We're going to see that Jonah was in many ways wicked, and the wicked people that we expected to be wicked, wicked are more righteous than Jonah is. And Jonah is the prophet of the Lord, meant to bring peace between man and God. Verse... Um, Verse, uh, verse 6, So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that each one will not perish. So these guys are freaking out, right? They're, they're praying. Every one of them's praying. Everyone's calling on his God. Verse 7, Each man said to his mate, Come, let, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? 
these people. Now, I think that it's interesting that they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Well, right? They said, pray to your God. You know, get up and pray. Yeah, pray you know. Your God will have I mean, they are freaking out. <laughs> but it's awesome that they cast the lots and God's like, okay, it's going to fall on Jonah. Right? God's like, again, Jonah is running from God. He's he's like, no, I'm not. And again, that's the thing about Jonah too. Jonah, uh, people, like we were talking about before, how people use Jonah as like, well, you can, you can run into sin and you can know all this stuff and God will still follow you and he will still. The thing is, is Jonah is not running. We're, we're going to see in the story that Jonah is not running away from his relationship with God, with God. Okay. What he is running from is the specific call that God is calling him to. God says, Jonah, I got a job for you. Jonah's like, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and as we read the book, we're going to find out why he doesn't want to do it. Okay. So each man, or okay, verse 8. Then they said, so the lot falls on Jonah. In verse 8, they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he said to him, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now that's pretty funny. He's like, I fear the Lord. Do you really? You're just going to get up. God's going to tell you what he wants you to do. You're going to run away the opposite extreme of what he's call, tell, called you to do. And you're going to sit here with a straight face and say, you fear the Lord. The other people, they're fearing the Lord right now. Jonah is asleep in the, in the hold of the ship. Jonah does not care what's happening. Verse 10, then the men became extremely frightened. I mean, they were freaking out a while ago. Now they're really freaking out. And they said to them, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to them, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Now, this looks good on the surface of it. But I think that, again, this is Jonah's attempt to run from what God wants him to do. Right? He doesn't say, pray that God will make the storm quit or anything like that. He's like, throw me overboard. And... and at the end of the book, we're going to see that Jonah wants to die again and stuff. And again, Jonah is being a willful child. He's like, you know, if you know how like a child would go, well, if you don't like it, just kill me or so, you know what I'm saying? Or just do something like that. That's Jonah's attitude right now. His attitude is he's being a child and he's like, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, even if you have to kill me. I don't care. Right. And so he's throwing a tantrum and he's like, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Verse 13, however, and, and, and so again, the story is all upside down. These pagan worshiping gods are like, we don't want to throw him into the ocean. <laughs> they don't want to throw him to the ocean. It says, and he, um, verse 13, however, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And again, this is what sailors were talking about too. Sailors have a reputation of being kind of the drag, the dregs of society, right? So... They probably weren't the nicest of people, but they don't want to throw Jonah overboard. Verse 14, then they called on the Lord and said, now they're not praying to their false gods anymore. They're praying to the Lord. They called on the Lord and said, 
We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's blood and do not put innocent on the account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, again, God is hearing the prayers of unbelievers, of pagan idol worshipers. And, and the thing that's really cool about it is even though Jonah is in sin and in rebellion against God, these people are turning to the Lord through it. I mean, isn't that wild? That God can still use a, a rebellious, immature, childish prophet, and he's, he's still using this to turn people's hearts toward him. It's the same thing in, in, in Philippians where Paul was talking about people who were preaching the gospel from, from um, um, impure motives. And he's like, I don't care why they're preaching the gospel as long as people are getting saved. Now, when we say that, though, hopefully they're preaching a true gospel. Now, their motive, he didn't say that they were preaching a false gospel or anything like that. He just said their motives are wrong, right? So, yeah. Okay. Continuing on. Verse 17, and the Lord, look at this. And again, uh, like you asked 99% of all people, tell me about Jonah. The first thing they're going to talk about is the well, right? And the well is a, just a tiny part of the whole story, right? Verse 17, and the Lord, appoint, in the first place, it wasn't a whale anyway. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, it may have been a whale, or it may have been just a huge fish, right? Maybe they didn't have the word whale in there. Well, <laughs> and even, even when Jesus <laughs> talked about it in the New Testament, he, he called it the sea creature or the mm. sea monster or whatever and stuff. Right. So it was a huge animal no matter what and right. stuff. But, but again, it's, the whale is a minor part of the story. The whale is just a vehicle. Right. And, and the problem is, is that we have taken that and we have majored on that so that we have lost the complete importance of the story. We have lost what the story is about. And, and we focused on the whale and the whale is just the whale is a vehicle to get Jonah from point A to point B. Jonah wants to take a ship and go the opposite way. God takes a, a fish or a whale and gets Jonah in the right way. All right. Yeah, it's like it's so awesome because God's like, okay, you want to do it your way, we're gonna do it my way, and it's like you know, it, and that's the thing. And, and God is sovereign, right? I mean, I believe that there are a lot of things that happen in life that I don't believe that God is a micromanager. I don't believe that He's a puppeteer. I don't believe that He is involved in every tiny little aspect of every tiny part of our lives. But I do believe that there are circumstances where, uh, like the death, life and death of Jesus, especially the crucifixion and other things in history, where God steps in and says, it's going to happen this way. Right? Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. 
Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, in all of this prayer, you won't see anything about repentance. Right? You won't see anything about, Lord, I messed up. I was wrong, I was sinning against you, I was willful, and I was arrogant. You don't see any of that. You do see gratitude in that the Lord saved him. But you don't see any kind of repentance, any kind of, Lord, forgive me for my sins, forgive me for disobeying you, any of that. He says, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forget, forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That's which I, that which I have vowed, I will pay. In other words, now I will be obedient. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. <laughs> now, I think that's awesome, too. Just the way it says it, it says the fish vomited him up onto the land. I mean, again, and, and here's the thing. When we walk in disobedience, we will get fish vomit on us, right? And that's, you know, the thing is, is as believers, as people who is, God has given us callings and giftings and things like that, if I mean, it's just like Paul, when, when, when the angel came to Paul and says, why do you kick against the goads? It's, it's hard for you, right? And, and the thing is, is we, sometimes we think that by disobeying the, disobeying the Lord and by not wanting to do God's will, that, that it's somehow going to be easier on us and it winds up being much, much harder and we, 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 we pierce ourselves through with many pangs because we want to do it our way. And because we want to be stubborn and we want to be rebellious and we think that our way is somehow better than God's way or our way is somehow easier than the way that God wants us to do it. And the thing is, is obedience is always the easiest part. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And again, this is awesome too in that God is a God of second chances. Right? God is... It, and sometimes the things that we go to go through, some, sometimes we just need to take a pause and say, Lord, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> you know, when, when all hell is... And again, we can have um, trials and, and tribulations and really, really bad circumstances. A lot of times it's because we're following the Lord and Satan's coming against us. But sometimes we need to check our hearts and see if there's something that we're sinning against the Lord or being in rebellion, just... Like the Corinthians, where he says, when you come to the communion table, you're just trying to do it for your own flesh, and some of you are getting drunk, others of you are eating, and other people aren't getting a, another chance, and stuff. And he says, when you come to communion, you need to examine yourself, because, because, because you're not doing that, some of you people are dead, or sick, right? And so, again, there's judgment on dis disobedience. But God is a God of second chances. God, just like the father with, with the prodigal, how willing he was to forgive his son. God is willing to forgive his people. But again, he waits for us to turn. He waits for us to stop being idiots and stop acting like children. So, 
Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And the thing that's awesome about this, again, is that God doesn't change what he wants to do. Just because Jonah's rebellious, just because, you know, God had to chase him down essentially and bring him back, the plan has not changed. The plan is still the same. And in verse 2, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So uh, again, just because we run for, is again, it's like children. We run from our parents. We go and do our own thing. We don't do what the parent wants us to do. And we think, well, maybe they'll just back off of it. Or maybe they'll kind of soften a little bit. Or maybe they won't, won't want me to do that and stuff. God's not like that. He says, okay, Jonah, remember what I told you? This is what I want you to do, right? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city at three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go out through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, there's no grace. There's no like, okay, if you guys repent, God will. There's none of that. Jonah's like, 40 days, and it's over with. And the Hebrew is five words and stuff. And, and I mean, there, again, there's no mercy in it. There's just like, you know what? The wrath of God is on you people. God is going to wipe you out and stuff. Look at uh, verse 5. It says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Again, the story of Jonah is backwards, upside down. The people that you think are the most wicked, the, the sailors, the people in Nineveh, they're all repenting. Now, one thing about Nineveh is the people of Nineveh were very, very wicked, right? Um, over and over in the Old Testament, you, you hear about uh, the Assyrians attacking uh, countries and just wiping them out and stuff. Um, the, the, the Assyrians, which Nineveh was the capital of Syria, they were, uh, they were known for their cruelty and how they, they, like some Kings would like, uh, they would burn and decapitate their enemies. Um, they would, uh, youth, young people and women were burned alive or they were made slaves. Uh, there was one King who in one city cut the heads off of 260 soldiers and just made a pyramid out of them. Right? They would skin people alive and, and just do all kinds of things to them. As a matter of fact, it was the Assyrians who invented crucifixion. And they did it purposefully. They, they would do all, all these things so that the nations that they went to war against would be terrified of them. So they, they were the most barbarous, the most um, cruel enemies that you could face at that time. And, that's, and so... So as we read this story, we start to understand a little bit about Jonah's thing. These people were really, really wicked. They weren't just like bad, you know, people just kind of doing bad things. These people would impale people on stakes. They would, um, they, they would totally, they would take a people and move a complete nation somewhere else. They would just uproot them and stuff. And so they were known for their cruelty. And this is, these are some of the reasons why Jonah didn't want to preach to them. And for all we know, maybe someone that Jonah knew personally had died or been had been um, crucified or had been tortured by them and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So when we read this, we start to understand a little bit about Jonah, and it, it starts to reveal more of his character. Um, verse 6, when the, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. 
He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. It says, But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then, look at this, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. That's awesome. That is way awesome. And again, this is the nature of prophecy. Um, you know, God... and. Again, you go back to what Jonah said. He's like, 40 days, Nineveh's going to be wiped out. Nobody's going to be left. It's going to be just leveled to the ground. And that was, that, that was the declaration. God had every um, intention of destroying Nineveh in the same exact way that he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But because of their repentance, it says that he changed his mind. He relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And that's the thing that's awesome about God. God even, and that gives us hope even in the light of, of our nation and the things that our country does, is that, you know what? If we turn from those things, God will spare us because he is a merciful God. And his desire is that no one perish. His desire is that people be saved. Even people as wicked as the Ninevites and the king of Nineveh, Nineveh, God was willing to forgive them when they would turn from their sins. Again, it's, it's just like the, the prodigal, right? When he came back and his father ran to meet him, that is the heart of God. The heart of God runs towards people who are willing to repent, who are willing to turn from their sins. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country, before he ran away? He says, Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew. Did he say, what, is he going to say that I knew that you're angry and, and jealous, God, and your wrath is waiting to destroy people? He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So now the mask is off. Now we see Jonah for exactly what he's about, why he ran why he's doing the things that he does, because he wanted them to be destroyed. And he knew that God was ready to destroy them. And again, everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. The Ninevites who should have been destroyed, the, the sailors who were wicked and, you know, God has had mercy on them. But his own prophet who should be uh, uh, like his name implies, a man of peace, a man who, who wanted to see the peace restored between God and man, he wanted to see them destroyed instead. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better for me than life. Again, I just want to die. All right? And I think we've all been in these kind of situations. We've all been in that place where, like, God, just kill me. I don't want to be here no more and stuff. And, and it's like sometimes 
We get in situations where things don't go the way that we want to and we get mad and we start feeling sorry for ourselves and oh, poor me, woe is me. Verse 4 says, the Lord says, do you have good reason to be angry? Now look at how patient God is. Look how God, God reasons with mankind. We, again, we, we, you know, unbelievers have this idea that God is just this God of wrath, just waiting to destroy people and rain fire on them and, and, and stuff. And God reasons with mankind. He, he says, God is not willing that anyone should, should perish, but that all should repent, right? That's why God delays judgment. God God delays judgment. We've, again, some people have in their minds that God is just quick to snap and that he's ready just to send judgment. God, that's the last thing that he wants to do. Verse 5, Then Jonah went out from there from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. I think he's still hoping that maybe God will change his mind and still just wipe him out. So, so the Lord God, again, just look, I mean, see this story as we read it, we're just getting a picture into the heart of God, right? It says, so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. In other words, when things are going good for Jonah, he's okay with it, right? But when things aren't going the way that he wants them to be, God, I wish you'd just take my life. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I have been this person. I have been in these situations. God, why don't you just kill me? Why are you letting me, why are you letting these things happen to me? So, right? And that's the problem with us as believers sometimes. When we're at church and everything's great and the worship is awesome and the back of your hair is standing up, oh, it's easy to serve God there. It's easy to raise your hands there and stuff like that. But when you walk out the door on Monday morning and and everything is coming against you, then it's a, then that's when you show who you are. And the thing is, is when you look at the story, God is this whole time trying to show Jonah who he is. We think, when you read this story, you think that this story is about the Ninevites. It's not about the Ninevites at all. It's about Jonah. God's not so much, he, he is, God is trying to get the Ninevites' attention, but more than that, he's trying to get Jonah's attention. He's trying to speak to Jonah. He's trying to do something in Jonah's heart. Verse 6, uh, verse, um, so God appoints a plant, and it grows up over Jonah, gives him shade. Jonah's really happy about that. Verse 7, but God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And again, he begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better for me than life. And again, it says God appointed the worm. You know, the Bible says God gives us good things and he gives us bad things, right? Just Job and all that and stuff. It says we should rejoice no matter what God gives us. And this is the path to maturity. This is the way that we grow in the Lord is learning how to rejoice in adversity because it's easy to rejoice when things are good. It's hard to rejoice when there's adversity. But this is where maturity comes in. When we begin to rejoice in our trials, Paul and Silas, they're locked up in chains. They're, they've been beaten. And at midnight, they just start singing praises to the Lord. They could have been going, God, why did you put me here? 
What did I do? Why are you so against me? Why do you hate me? But they start rejoicing in the Lord, right? Verse 9, again, God is being so patient and he's reasoning with Jonah. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he says, I have good reason to be angry even to death. So again, listen to him. He sounds like a child, right? God's trying to reason with him. It's, it's like if you've ever seen a parent try to pacify a child. Junior, do you really have to throw a fit? Do you really? Come on. Here, let's go get an ice cream or something. No! Ah! And that's exactly how Jonah's being, and that's exactly how we are a lot of times. Verse 10, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Look at the heart of God.